And we see that these other gods are 
These other gods are unable to save them or provide for them, and yet Israel turns to them from you. Would you teach us tonight from this chapter the things that we have to learn that you'd like to communicate to us? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now looking at our text. All right, 2 Kings, verses 24 through 30. And it's going to be the devastating famine. Because of this war going on, the, the, the famine is unbelievable. So let's pick it up. We are in the middle of the chapter, and as I explained, the earlier part was the raising of the axe head, and also the, the um, causing the marauders to become blind. And now we pick it up. Verse 24. It says, Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Abraham, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. Now the next verse is going to talk about the famine. So many things that can cause famine, the context is leading us to understand it's because of the fact that Samaria is being besieged. Now just quickly, just to uh, help us look at the context, go back one verse to verse 23. So this is where Elisha uh, blinded them, brought them to Samaria, opened their eyes, fed them, and sent them on their way. It says, so he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master, and the marauding bands of the Arameans, which is the same as the Syrians, did not come again into the land of Israel. Then, verse 24, well, he, the king of Aram gathered all of his army and went up and besieged Samaria. That's not these marauders that were raiding it, they did not come back down to Israel. And we really don't know the time limit between verse 23 and 24, although one suggested a year, but we really have no way of knowing that. Um, it is the idea that once again, King Ben-Hadad is trying to really defeat Israel, take all the spoils, and then indeed probably destroy it. One writes this, perhaps the miraculous arranged temporary law had been divinely designed to teach Israel's God's abiding love and concern for his people, to whom he had sent this duly authenticated prophet Elisha. But with no evidence of repentance by Israel, God withdrew his protected hand, and Israel faced a full-scale Syrian invasion. And again, when we think of that, we need to think of chapters like Deuteronomy 28 and other places where God has already told Israel, if you continue to serve me, you will be provided for and protected. That's all in the covenant with the Israelites in the Old Testament. But if you don't, and various things will be sent your way to chastise you. One of them is foreign enemies coming in, as well as famine, and many, many other things. So, God is in control here, even though his people are suffering and dying, and we have a horrific, horrific scenario that we're, we're moving closer towards. Verse 25. It says there was a great Famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was stolen for 80 shekels of silver, and a fourth of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, this is getting down to the nitty gritty, isn't it? This is getting down to the worst of the worst. I mean, to eat a donkey's head, you're not going to get a lot of meat. And it's because you have nothing else. You're down to the nitty-gritty. And then to see how, how much it costs is unbelievable. And that's the plight that they're in with this great famine. Well, the idea of it being sold for 80 shekels of silver today, to 
today, that would be $632. So to buy a donkey head, or imagine going into the meat counter and saying, I'd like to buy a cow's head, and they say, well, okay, the price is $632. That's incredible. Now, uh, what do you have in the head? Well, you have very little meat. You do have the brains. You have the tongue. I do remember when I did work for a meat uh, counter, and they, they, they did their own meats, and then they had a counter and sold it. Had a woman come up to me one time and said, Sonny, do you have any brains? And, and we did sell cow brains, and we would scoop them up. She said, Sonny, do you have any brains? I said, man, if I did, then I would I be working here. <laughs> but 80 ducks. Shekels of silver, so I don't know what it was back then, but this just illustrates how terrible it was. And then the question we're all wondering doves, dumb, is that really what we're asking here? Well, it either was a nickname for some small pea or root, and so you know they, they called it that. We don't know for sure, or it was literal dumb to be used as fuel or even food in a desperate situation. So I really don't want to go into all of this, but uh, it, it, there are places uh, in Scripture where there's a reference to they were starving and they resorted to dung to eat. Whether that was just metaphorical or literal, I'm not sure. But anyway, what did, dung, what did Dove's dung go for? Uh, well, $40. Five shekels of silver would have went $40 today. Uh, so next time you're out walking in the woods and you see some deer dropping, be sure to pick them up. You might get a good price. <laughs> okay. Um, this demonstrates literally how bad this time was. People were dying. But if that wasn't enough, look at what we find in the following verses. In verse 26, it says, As the king of Israel, king Jehoram, was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. So the people are crying out. When they see the king, they're desperate to have some kind of help. Well, being the compassionate guy that he is, this is his response in verse 27. He said, if the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Those things are empty. They are not really able to go and process anything else. They are starving. But then the king, in verse 28, after the smart remark, it says, And the king said to her, What is the matter with and she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son, and we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. So it's a judicial thing. She's coming to the king, helping with this judicial problem. Well, as we as we look at this, when, when uh, the king said, am I the Lord? Can I help you? If the Lord doesn't help you, then how can I help you? There's a sense in which King Jehoram knows where help comes from. And I think there's a sense in which he knows that the Lord could reverse this famine. So that's good. He is the king of Israel, after all. This is where Elisha is in the northern kingdom. However, he never acknowledged why it's happening. And the reason why it's happening is because Israel's disobedience to the Lord. They continue to worship these false gods. Now, I'd like to have us turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's the famous chapter where he goes over the blessings and the curses. 
If they follow the Lord faithfully, they will receive blessings. And he goes through there, and they're fantastic. But if they don't follow him and they turn to other gods, then these are the curses and consequences, and there are plenty of them. But notice in verse 52, in verse 53, what one of the consequences are. He talks about enemies, other nations, verse 52, it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body and the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, during the siege and the distress by which your enemies will oppress you. So this is because of their sin. He allowed this famine to come, and then all of the results and consequences of this famine. And these are the things that he already predicted and prophesied, said were going to happen. Now, getting back to this woman, this was a, a horrific agreement. It was an agreement between these two women. And evidently, they had families, they were starving, and it, it was, you know, I guess uh, they, they, they were dealt with this dilemma of whether they were going to eat their child. Well, the one woman agreed, and they obviously ate the child, and it must have fed family. And then the next day when she went to see if she was going to give her son, her son was hidden. And so she reneged on this horrific agreement. Well, let's look at the king's response. Verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked he had sackcloth beneath on his body. So this distressed him as it should have. The question would be, why is it that he was so distressed? Well, we'll kind of talk about that in just a moment. But he put on sackcloth and tore his clothes. All of those are symbols of mourning. Now, we find that in numerous passages. And you don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 37-34, so Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Now what is sackcloth? Well, it's uh, made from goat's hair, and it's made into a cloth, and they make sacks out of it. Sackcloth, or bags. It's a coarse fabric. Uh, they say it's of a dark color made of goat's hair. So this is something that they use to carry things, but also they use this when they want to show that they're, they're mourning. They take off all of what would be the proper clothing, expensive clothing, and they, they want to be as humble as possible. It's not only a sign of mourning, but it can also be a sign of repentance. However, I don't think I don't think that he's repenting. Um, I think he's just horrified with this atrocity. Uh, atrocity. And, and why do I say that? Because it's not going to be very long before he's threatening to kill Elisha. So it's not that he's repenting to the Lord; it's that he is just faced with this atrocity, and it is bad. It's the awful condition from the famine. Now, he was horrified, for sure, and it horrifies us just even to read it, about what had happened. And I wonder if he was even horrified, although I doubt it. I wonder if he was even horrified by the fact that this woman whose child was eaten appeared to have little or no remorse for her child. She was coming to a court of law because the agreement was broken. Your, your, your child was killed. Your child was eaten. So 
I doubt that he had compassion that far, but certainly what was happening and what was happening to the people in his kingdom. Well, now it's at this point that we introduce Elisha again. And he is going to be on the scene. The king is going to try to kill him. He is on the scene, and then he is going to prophesy the end of the famine. So in other words, this famine was there to get Israel's attention, to get them to where they were groveling and come to the Lord. Although King Jehoram goes about it the wrong way. All right, so let's pick it up then in verse 31. Then he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Well, here we have it. Now, if you remember, Jehoram is the son of Ahab. So, Ahab was king, and when he died, his son Ahaziah was king. When he died, Jehoram became king, who was Ahaziah's brother, or Ahab's son. Now, Ahab, if you remember, Ahab uh, spoke terrible toward Elijah when things went wrong. In 1 Kings 18, 17, and you don't have to turn there, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? You're the one that brought all this trouble on. Well, his son was following in his footsteps. But to be honest with you, his son, his son was following in the footsteps of his mother. His mother was Jezebel. And you remember what she did? He vowed to kill the prophet. In 1 Kings 19.2, it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So, Jehoram, in a sense, was keeping in style with Jezebel. Let me just say this, and it's an application that almost goes without saying. Look at the influence that we have as parents on our children. And you know, the truth is it can be for good or for evil. Now, as believers, we're certainly trying to live for the Lord. We're trying to teach our children about the Lord uh, so that they don't go down the wrong path. And, and I've said it, and I still say it. Things are very bad, so bad, that we need to double down. This is not a time to take this lax about raising our children. Um, it's, it's the influence. Um, and sometimes it could be an influence, maybe not even always what you teach, but just how you act, the things you say. Um, it's amazing how those things get implanted in the brain. You don't necessarily know it, they don't necessarily know it, but all of a sudden it comes out in their attitude and they're saying the same thing. <coughs> Uh, evidently, that's the case of what's here with Jehoram. So, we really need to be very, very careful with our children and our grandchildren in this day and age to double down, teach them to walk in the way of the Lord. Well, with that threat, we pick it up in verse 32. And verse 32 says, Now Elijah was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent the man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer, speaking of Jehoram, Ahab was a murderer, Jezebel was a murderer, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door. And hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? The Lord had revealed this. Now this is very interesting because we still remember, you remember when the Shunammite woman was coming to Elisha and she tells this problem, he said to her, oh, I didn't know. The Lord had hidden it from me. He had revealed it. Well, since that time, we've seen numerous times when the Lord has revealed these things to him. And 
This is one of them, but this one involves his own life. And so when he said, oh, the Lord didn't reveal that to me, with this prophet, and I'm sure with other prophets, it, it happened in reg with regularity that the Lord was just revealing not only future things, but present things that were about to happen. Well, we, we find out then that he says, look, when he comes, he already knows they're coming, he didn't overhear anything, the Lord revealed it to him. He said, when the messenger comes, shut the door, and hold the door shut against him. And the idea is to keep him out. You say, well, why? Well, because the king is behind him, and Elisha wanted to speak directly to the king. He wanted to speak directly to the king because the king is the one who's leading this nation away from the Lord. And so it's his responsibility, and Elisha wanted to address him. So he says, is not the sound of his master's speech behind him? In verse 33 then, it says, while he was still talking with them, so now they engaged in a conversation, behold, the messenger came down to him, and of course we believe also the king, and he said, behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now there's a little bit of confusion here because we're trying to figure out who's the one who is speaking here. Uh, it, is, is it the messenger who is speaking? Is it Elisha who is speaking? Or is it the king? I really believe it's the king, and most, most good commentaries do as well. Uh, and, and if you do, look, look at this. Um, it says... Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Well, you wouldn't imagine Elisha saying that. This is not evil. This is God bringing his people back. And then it says, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It wouldn't be the messenger who was waiting for the Lord. It was the king waiting for the Lord through Elisha. And King Jehoram is saying, why should I wait anymore? Nothing going to happen. Nothing has happened at this point. So, again, he's blaming the Lord for this evil. He's blaming the prophet for this evil when really he was the one to blame. He was the one to blame to leading Israel and not allowing Israel to return to the Lord. When you come to chapter 7, and even though they put a chapter there, beginning of a chapter, it really continues on. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. And I want to stop right there. This is what we've been talking about so many times. What is the role of a prophet? To be a spokesman for God. An accurate, infallible spokesman. He says, Listen to the word of God. Now, either he's not telling the truth, or he's a bad prophet and only going to give you half of the word of the Lord, or this is how it works. God has his chosen spokesman. Through the miracles, they attract the attention of the people. The people then are ready to listen to the message, or should be. And that's what's going to happen here, even though Jehoram isn't going to ultimately listen. But he says, listen to the word of the Lord. Not my word, but the word of the Lord. Besides, just a moment ago, the Lord had revealed to him that the king was coming, and now the Lord is going to reveal what the Lord is going to do miraculously. And what is it? Well, let's continue on with verse 1. He says, Thus says the Lord. Not him. Thus says the Lord. That, and again, I know I'm going to repeat myself, but that phrase is so key. It's so key in understanding the inspiration of Scripture. It's so key in understanding the infallibility of the prophets and spokesmen, and i.e. the apostles. And, and this is the phrase that's used. It's not used as much in the New Testament, but what is used in the New Testament is when Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of all things that I said. He will guide you into all truth. Don't worry about what you're going to say. And so, 
we have for the apostles, we have the word of the Lord coming from them. When they wrote and when they spoke. And that's what it says in Second Peter. Um, that the Holy Spirit carried them along and they spoke the word of God. All right, so anyway, I, I just have to say that. If we live in perilous times, and if we don't believe this is the word of God, there's no way we're going to be able to raise our families in the way that we should. One of the things we need to teach our families is that it is the word of God. It's not optional. And we see that so. We see that so much. And I've heard recently someone who you know, they knew it was the truth. They knew it's what God said. But, you know, don't you think God, don't you think God allows other viewpoints? <laughs> uh, no man does, but God doesn't. It's his viewpoint and his viewpoint alone. All right, well, what's going to happen in this prophecy? Well, he's going to prophesy the end of the famine and an increase. He says, tomorrow, tomorrow, as if you can turn economy around this quick. Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for one shekel, and two measures of barley for one in the gate of Samaria. Wow, how is this going to happen when they are in complete famine and hunger and uh, pestilence? Well, let's pick it up and we'll see. But before we do, since we talked about the price of a donkey head and dove's dung, let's talk about the price of fine flour when things are going to be good. When it says a measure of fine flour, they are approximating it's about seven quarts. That's not bad. Seven quarts of fine flour, and you can make a lot of things. Well, that's going to be sold for one shekel, and a shekel today is worth eight dollars. Not six hundred thirty-two, eight dollars. So even today, I think we might have a bargain to buy fine flour. And then he says, two measures of barley. So the fine flour would be the, the more uh, excellent crude type. And then two measures of barley equals about 13 to 14 quarts. And that will be sold for a shekel, $8. So in other words, everyone's going to have abundance. Uh, tomorrow, today, we're dying. And they're eating their children. Tomorrow, everything is going to be fine. Verse 2, at this point, the royal officer that's with the king, he is going to speak derogatory toward God and toward the prophet. And that's something you don't do in the book of 2 Kings. It says, the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And then it says, and then he said, and this would be Elijah, behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat it. So let's just go back here to this, this derogatory remark. The idea is, is that even if the Lord had windows in heaven and Elijah could look up into it and was right, could God turn this around and correct the famine in 24 hours? He was now doubting the power of God. But he's also doubting and disrespecting the prophets. If you had a window into heaven, which we, there's a better way, and that is that the Lord reveals it personally to Elisha. And so he's disrespecting Elisha, saying, what, did you look through a window and see what God was going to do? And he's saying, either God doesn't have enough power, or you don't know what you're talking about. Or both. And then, of course, we can see why he received this curse. Uh, it reminds us of the 40 youths or so that were making fun of Elisha because he was bald. And he ended up cursing them, and they there came in Malta. And you say, well, that's terrible. 
that the Bible is full of violence. And what kind of a loving God is that? Well, we missed the point. The point was, number one, they were making fun of the prophet. The prophet is the one that gives us God's word. We should never uh, have any ill feelings towards God's word. And also, too, in there, they were also saying, go up, go up. Just like Elijah went up. Well, if you're a prophet, you bald prophet, go up, go up. And so he cursed them, and they were mauled by a bear. Well, we see the same disrespect, and he says this. Okay, you're going to see it. You're going to see that you were wrong. You're going to see that you're in unbelief. You're going to see the great removal of the famine and this great increase. But you're not going to be a part of it. You're not going to be a part of it. Well, the good news is, is that this is going to happen. The bad news is, is we're not going to see this happen until next week. But it does indeed come to be. Now, so that's the end of the prophecy. And this is what he says. So now there's like a little bit of a pause and a little bit of drama. Is this going to come true? Or how, how is this possibly going to come true? Look at verse 3. Now we have the lepers. Four lepers. It's interesting. We've already looked at one leper. Naaman, who was healed of his leprosy. But here's another one. Second Kings, the book of lepers. And we're going to see that they're going to play a role in this. So let's take a look at it. Now, times were so bad that these lepers were depressed, facing death. And in verse 3 it says, Now there were four lepers men at the entrance of the gate. Why were they at the entrance of the gate? Because they couldn't go into the city. Lepers, as we see from Scripture and talked about before, are shut from the city uh, according to the law. So they're outside. And so they're outside at the gate, and they said to one another, why don't we sit here until we die? In other words, maybe we can do something. I don't know what it is we're going to do. Maybe we can do something. Well, what is it that they're going to do? Look at verse 4. It says, if we say we will enter the city, and the famine is in the city, and we will die there. So there's no sense going into the city, even if it's against the law. And if we sit here, we die also. So it doesn't do them any good to stay still. So they come up with this plan. Now therefore, come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, we will but die. In other words, which we were going to die in the city or at the gate anyway. So their idea is, is that no matter how dangerous this is going to be, it could cost them their lives, there's still the possibility that they can be given some food and some sustenance over there in the Aramean camp. And again, uh, I don't know how many, it doesn't say how many, but it says all of the king's army had come down from Aram. Remember last time we talked about it, so we have Aram or Syria right above Israel the northern side. So it's on the border. And of course, that's the nation that they can come down and battle, and that's what they do. And and, uh, we see Samaria there uh, on that map. All right, so they've come down. They're there in Samaria. They brought a lot of supplies. They have the supplies. They've obviously been planning this, so they have the supplies, whereas Samaria can't get supplies, and they're in the family, and they're all going to die. Well, these four lepers are kind of bold and desperate, and so in verse 5, it says they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. So they're going to go. They're going to go and kind of go in there, go in there kind of, uh, you know, a little apprehensive, and then when they're Humbly, they're going to go in there and surrender. That's the plan. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. The Arameans left. Well, what happened? Well, 
just as Elisha prophesied, the Lord caused the miracle, and this miracle is going to be the reversal of the famine. But let's read what the miracle is. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. So they heard such a loud noise, and it must have been a noise that was not just located in one spot. You're thinking if it was a great army, it's, it's a surround sound, if you will. But they heard these chariots, and, and you know, uh, I was trying to think about this too, you know, at times, uh, you know, we're out in the woods and we're listening for certain things. Of course, we're not fighting the enemy and trying to hunt some game. And we hear an elk bugle. Well, we kind of go into action. Now, if we heard a bear road uh, or a bear uh, roar, uh, we'd also get into action but go the other way. But if we heard an elk, we would go toward it. But they had heard this and they were so fearful and they reasoned to themselves, they must have gone out. They don't have enough. So they were so desperate that they said, someone out, go talk to the Hittites, go hire them, go talk to the Egyptians, go hire them, and have them come back and fight against us. And they immediately abandoned everything. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. So I'm trying to figure out why they left horses. Um, certainly the whole army wouldn't have been able uh, to run away on foot, would have they? Well, that seems to be what happened. Maybe they had some horses with chariots, and they, those guys got out first. But you get the idea that they were so scared and so terrified that it was, we either leave now, or forever hold our peace. So, I remember one time that I was in the woods back in Pennsylvania, and I was doing a little turkey hunting, and I was walking down this uh, this trail, and about uh, 150 yards of this trail, I see this black bear. Okay. Well, good thing was, there's good news and bad news. The good thing was, was that I had just been at a bear seminar, and we were given advice. And the first advice was don't worry because if they see you, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to run away from you. Well, this bear keeps coming, and I see that he looks at me, and he still keeps coming. He's not afraid one bit. So, being the heroic hunter that I am, I just kind of go down the trail, and then I slip off of the trail about 50 yards. Sure enough, here he comes. But he's got his nose to the ground, and I don't know if he's sniffing for me or what, but he goes past me. So he goes past me, I give it a little time, and I, I thought, well, I, I avoided that dangerous situation. I was going to go up, go the other way, and continue on hunting. And all of a sudden I look, he had come down off of the trail, and now he's starting to circle me. Well, what did the bear do after that? I have no idea, because I got up to that trail, and I just got out of it. Oh, and I left my camouflage jacket there. And uh, the whole uh, community had the joke, did you see the bear wearing the camouflage coat? <laughs> anyway, so, but this this was horrific. I mean, at least at least something like that, I mean, he wasn't coming to attack, but I I, I was kind of spooked, but not terrified. Well, here they were terrified, and they just left, and they left it all. Well, what happened then? Well, then the lepers took advantage of this. And it says in verse 8, that when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank, and carried from there silver and gold and clothes, and went and hid them. 
And they returned and entered another town, and carried them there also, and went and hid them. So I'm going to stop there, okay? It's an interesting point, but I think we can at least figure out, voila, the Lord miraculously caused them to hear these chariots. They were so fearful that they moved out of there and left everything there. The lepers see it. They uh, ransack it. They provide for themselves. And what is going to happen, we'll see more of the lepers. They're going to go back and they're going to tell the king. Well, obviously then, the, the rest of the story, everyone will be fed. The famine will be over and they can go back to business as usual. But I do want us to drop down to verse 18 for just a second. So this is the spoiler alert. <laughs> if you don't want to hear this, uh, put your hands over your ears. But I want to at least show us this. In verse 18, it's the fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy. We'll go over these verses next week. It says, It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow, about this time, at the gate of Samaria. So it indeed is going to happen, and we can imagine how it is. Now, before we conclude, I do want to make a couple of applications from this text. The first one is blaming God. Both Ahab and Jehoram blamed the prophet for all their troubles. However, in all reality, it was God whom they were blaming for their problem. They were saying it was Elisha's fault, but he's just the prophet and the spokesman, the one through whom God does the miracle, but it's God who's doing it. It was their own disobedience that was causing their problems, and the Lord used warring nations as chastisement in order to bring them back. Now, what about today? As for believers today, believers, it is not a becoming thing for us to blame God for problems in our lives. That's not becoming of us. We should not do this. We should have the knowledge of what we have here in the book of Elisha. Now, in some sense, problems can be a way of chastisement. You might think of a, of a backsliding believer, and the problems mount up, and they're a way of getting his attention getting him that he can't go any direction except up, and getting the attention of a backslider. That's one of the ideas. But the other idea we'll be talking about on Sunday is God uses all things, problems, non-problems, all to cause the believer to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we do view this a lot. I think this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's one of the most impressionable. Verse 28 begins, and we know, Romans 8, 28, that God, God causes all things, not some things, all things to work together for good. Now, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And this would speak of believers. They are in that category those who love God, and those who are called according to the purpose. So believers, everything that comes into our lives is being caused by God to work for good. Even problems. Now, what is the good? Well, I would say, first of all, the good would be God's glory. And then secondly, the good would be our good in making us more like Christ. Look at what he says. Or, let me explain it, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So all of these things in our lives have been predestined to make us more like Christ. How does that work? Well, come on Sunday, and I'm going to take that whole, the whole uh, service to explain how that works. But it's good enough to know that blaming God not becoming a believer. And there's no reason for us to blame God when he's conforming us to Christ. The 
second thing is the royal officers. There's an interesting contrast here. So we have a contrast in the sense of two royal officers. Now the first one was Naaman. Now we know that Naaman was also the captain of the army of Syria. Uh, he was an honorable man, had all of these uh, accolades and all of these medals of how good he was, but he also had leprosy. And so a Jewish slave girl said, if only you could talk to the prophet, he could heal you. And of course, that's why he went to Israel. And the prophet did heal him. And then at that point, you remember what happened. The uh, Naaman said, now I know there was only one God, and that is the God in Israel. And he wanted to give something to Elisha for performing this, and Elisha said, no. He said, well then, let me take some earth some dirt with me. He was praying. The reason is, is because when he would bow then, in his country, he would have Israel dirt there, and it would be as if he's kneeling as he would in Israel. And so he was a Syrian. Same ones that were attacking, and the same ones that fled. Now, I don't know if he was a part of this or not, but we have his example. He worshipped God of Israel. Now we have this other royal officer, who is the royal officer of the king of Israel. Of all the people that should know better. And what happens when, when Elisha gives this prophecy? He makes fun of God. And he makes fun of Elisha. What? Is there a window in heaven that you can see? And even if you could see, this thing can't be done. So he mocks the power of God, and he mocks God's spokesman. And this contrast, I, I really see this as one of the contrasts in the book of Second Kings to say, what is the travesty to Israel? Look at the level that their devotion to God has fallen and degenerated. That even a Syrian officer has more belief and worship and heartfelt worship of Yahweh than does this royal officer. And so this is the plight and of course, uh, disrespecting God or his prophet is a sign of unbelief. And it's so important that we understand God, his prophet, and God's message, and God's word, as we have said so many times. But with that, let us not be blaming God for our problems. And if there's something we need to fix, let us fix it and get right with God. But other than that, accept it from the Lord and thank the Lord for all things and then to be an example of believers as we should be and not to be embarrassed by the way others may be more dedicated, committed to things than we are to our Lord and our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this evening and Father, the very book that we're reading out of the Bible is foundational because of verses like what we read from Elisha. Thus says the Lord. It's not Elisha's word. It's your word. And listen, the word of the Lord. So Father, we thank you for that basis. And when we move into the New Testament, Lord, uh, we see the same basis for the apostles, the same basis for the inspiration of Scripture, the same basis for the word of God, that tells us what we ought to believe and how we ought to behave. Father, may we pass these things on to our children because they are learning from us one way or another. They are getting it one way or another. Let it be through a good example and good teaching. And Father, we thank you that we're here tonight to learn more.